I was driven on by the sense that nobody else had told their story in any kind of complete, meaningful way. And peeling back those layers, taking taking off those filters was something that I felt driven to do. I hope that I did justice to her story. I hope I finally told it in the way that she would have wanted it told. Hello and welcome to Emerging Form, a podcast on creative process. I'm Rosemary Watola Tromer. And I'm Christy Ashwanden. Hey, Rosemary. Hi, Christy. How are you, friend? I am great, and I'm really excited about our guest this week. Um, She is someone who I just recently met. Uh, It turns out we have the same phenomenal editor at Norton. His name is Matt Weiland. And he actually had sent me her book and said, hey, I think you might like this book. Um, So I got an advanced copy and absolutely fell in love with it. And then I found out that she had a, a little book tour that was coming through the region. And I said, oh, my God, you have to come out here. And so she came out to Paonia Books and did a fantastic little reading. We did that together. I got to ask her questions about this book that I so fell in love with. It was a really exciting experience to meet a new friend. And I, like I said, I loved her book so much and just hope everyone will have a chance to read it because it's really that good. I'm excited about it too. Just I've read all the reviews and New York Times article about her Mm -hmm. and I'm thrilled. Melissa L. Sivany grew up in Tucson, Arizona, where she fell in love with the Sonoran Desert's ecology and dark desert skies. And she's worked as a science communicator in the fields of space exploration, water policy, and sustainable agriculture. And she has a BS in environmental science from University of Arizona and an MFA in creative writing from Iowa State University. That's an amazingly cool resume, by the way, just those two things. Yeah. Isn't it? Her writing is so beautiful. It really reflects both that science background and that creative background. Mm -hmm. She's a science reporter at KNAU, Arizona Public Radio, in Flagstaff, Arizona. And her stories have been awarded regional Edward R. Murrow Awards and featured nationally on Science Friday. She's written three books, Mythical River, Under Desert Skies, and her latest that we were just talking about, Brave the Wild River. Let's bring her on. Welcome to Emerging Form, Melissa. Thanks for having me. We're so glad you're here. And for listeners who haven't read your book yet, could you start maybe by just giving us a brief summary of what your latest book is about? Of course. Yeah, I'm so excited about this book to have it out in the world. Uh, It's called Brave the Wild River. And it's about two botanists who in 1938 got the somewhat crazy idea that they were going to run more than 600 miles of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, and they were going to make a plant collection there. And this was sort of untested ground for botany. You know, there hadn't been a formal collection for Western botany in this region before. And it was also sort of untested Mm -hmm. ground for women because women weren't really doing this kind of trip back in the 1930s. And so I tell their story and I talk about the science and the natural history of this region. And it's kind of a a grand adventure with a lot of science tucked in. Yeah, it really is. One of the things I loved about the book was just that there was sort of the sense of adventure. There was the science part of it, which is really interesting. There was the ecosystem. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize that this was before all those dams had gone in. So the river was, Mm -hmm. you know, it was not as tame as it is these days. I know a lot of people 
uh, are still doing that. It's, it's not the same boat trip that you would take today because of that. And so that was pretty interesting. And then the other thing that I really noticed, um, Lisa, was that there was a lot of talking about uh, the challenges they faced as women. And uh, it seemed like you were trying not to talk about it, and yet it kind of came up. <laughs> You're right. I was trying not to talk about it. I mean, uh-huh. I, you know, I, and that proved to be very difficult to do. Uh, you know, I went into the story wanting to tell it as a science story. I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about these two women as professional botanists doing hard, difficult work out in a remote region of the country and really focus on the importance of their botanical research. And what I found was that it was really hard not to write about the sexism they faced. It kept mm-hmm. interfering with the story. It kept mm-hmm. cropping up. And I I tried to avoid writing about it because I didn't want the focus of the story to be on their gender. And yet mm-hmm. there's that that layer of like, this is a story about gender because they were constantly having obstacles put in their way. People telling yeah. them that they shouldn't be scientists, that they shouldn't be river runners, that they just shouldn't be there. And so I had to tell that story in the end. And um, it actually, it surprised me where the book took me. I wasn't expecting you know, the epilogue to end up where it did with a with a focus on the challenges that women in science face. That wasn't the story I really set out to write. Um, but it like like the current, it kind of just swept me up and it, it took me that direction. It was part of the story that really had to be told. Uh-huh. And here, I just want to jump in. Yeah, Melissa, you and I did a, a, an event together at Payonia Bookstore uh, where you talked about the book. And we mentioned this there, that this book, it, it really struck me that this book passes the, the Finkbeiner test. And for those of you uh. listeners who aren't familiar with it, uh, the Finkbeiner test is a test that I devised based on uh, my colleague and Finkbeiner had written a, a post on Last Word on nothing. And we, we can link to this, but it's basically sort of molded on the Bechdel test. And it's a test for, you know, are you writing about female scientists as if gender was the only lens and the only interesting thing about them? And there's this tendency to write about women scientists about like, oh, here's this cute dog. Isn't it really cute that it can also dance or, or you know, the sort of dog and pony sort of show. And this, this, book does such a brilliant job of of really embracing that approach of of really telling the story of the scientists and the women as human beings and not as some sort of special entity and not as tokens. And I, I really commend you for that because it's not easy sometimes to do that. Thank you so much. Yeah, it feels like walking a tightrope sometimes, yeah. you know, it's striking that balance, being honest about what they face as women and the sexism they face, but not having that be the central or the only part yeah. of the story that you're telling. And, you know, I love that test. I, I, I was familiar with that test. I wasn't, I don't think, consciously thinking about it as I wrote this book. But um, after we talked, it struck me, you know, the basic idea is like, you should be able to have two women in a story talking to one another about something that isn't a man, right? right. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. This is like this very bottom level bar yeah. to cross. And there's a scene in my book that I like to read, um, you know, when I do readings that actually has Lois in the middle of the night talking in her sleep about the plant collection she's made. Uh-huh. And there's this little dialogue between Lois Jotter and Elzada Clover, my, my two main characters, that they have where in the process of this dialogue, Elzada Clover realizes that her companion is talking in her sleep. So even in their sleep, these yeah. women were talking about science. And I really <laughs> I love, love that about them. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were just starting to get interested in this book, what was it that drew you to their story? 
So I, I ran across their story totally by chance. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking for something else that I no longer remember, <laughs> and I stumbled across Lois Jodder's papers that are archived at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, where I live. And there was there was instantly a spark. Like all I had was this brief little description of this this collection of papers that hadn't been curated. Most of it wasn't online or available anywhere except in physical hard copies mm-hmm. at the library. And the description was that she had you know, run the Colorado River with her mentor, Alzada Clover, and that they had made this plant collection. And that was it. And instantly I felt a spark. Like I wanted to know more about that story. And partly because I had never heard their names before. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in Arizona. I thought I knew a lot about the history of this region. And yet I had never heard their names. And I wanted to know why that was. Like why it sounded like this amazing adventure and this significant scientific work. And, and yet I didn't know who they were. And initially, I didn't want to write something. I wanted to read something. Uh-huh. You know, I, <laughs> I, I was looking for something I could read about the, the, these women. And there were things out there that had been written about them, but nothing that really satisfied my curiosity, mm-hmm. specifically about the scientific work that they did. I just, it, I saw a hole, like there was this gap that mm-hmm. this, this story hadn't been filled in. And so I started digging around in the archives and yeah, eventually I just, it, it, took, it took me a few months between discovering their story and finally admitting to myself, if you really want to know the story, you're going to have to write it yourself. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so how how did you go about writing it? I mean, once you sort of knew, okay, I have to be the one to write this, what's the process here? I mean, I know this book took so much research and it's not the same kind of research you would have done if this was someone who was a living character, right? Right. Yeah. I had to rely mostly on these archival records. Mm-hmm. Both these women had, I think, the foresight and the courage to to feel that their story was important enough to leave archives behind. Mm-hmm. So they both donated their diaries from the 1938 trip before they passed away, actually. And then other materials kind of accrued over time in those collections um, after they had passed. And there were other scattered archives that I had to go out sideways. You know, um, a lot of times you know, things were saved, not because people were thinking these two women were important, but because some man they came into contact with was important <laughs> uh-huh. in the history of the Colorado River. And so, you know, I had to dive into those archives and kind of like, yeah, come at it a little bit sideways, finding documents mm-hmm. that were relevant. Um, that was particularly true of Elzada Clover's letters. For some reason, she didn't keep them herself. She was an intensely private person mm-hmm. and, and didn't keep a lot of that kind of material. So I had to find her letters in the archives of the men that she was writing to and sort of piece them all together. And that was the backbone of the book was was the diaries and these letters, um, a few other materials, oral histories, things like that. But then I had like layers that I had to add on top of that. Um, I had to go run the Grand Canyon myself. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew I was going to have to go see. I hadn't I had never done that before. And so I was going to have to go see what it was like to be on a whitewater rafting trip in the Grand Canyon and add kind of that layer of description and experience and sort of texture to the story. Um, And I tracked down people who knew them. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, both of these women have have passed away, but they have relatives and friends and former students who are still alive that I was able to track down sometimes via postal letters through the (laughs) mail, mail. (laughs) you know, really analog experience here. Um, And they were also generous with their time. And really my picture of who these women were were primarily drawn from their own writing, but also from 
the descriptions of people who really knew them well. You know, this brings up something for me. I'm thinking about in Hamilton and how there's a scene where we see Hamilton's wife. She's just discovered that her husband has cheated on her and she decides uh, she burns every letter. (laughs) And she's like, they don't get to know. In fact, the line is, I'm I'm erasing the letters you wrote me. And there's this Mm. whole thing about let future historians wonder how Eliza reacted. And I just think it's interesting that you say that they had the courage to let know their story was important. They had the courage to leave their diaries behind, despite the fact that maybe they were exceptionally private people. Knowing that they were exceptionally private people, how did you kind of, did? I mean, did that stir anything in you, like knowing that you were telling the story of a very private person? How, how did you respond to that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there is a, a certain, a, like, I guess a shyness, I think, to approaching, mm-hmm. especially right at the beginning when I was kind of getting to know them through their papers. Um, there's definitely a hesitation and a shyness there, like, would I am I the right person to tell this story? Do mm-hmm. I have a right to tell this story? Mm-hmm. And that can be hard to get over, you know. Sure. But I think I was driven on by the sense that nobody else had told their story in any kind of complete or or meaningful way. And I don't mean that those works aren't meaningful, but I, I mean that the description of who these two women were. I mean, what had been written about them often often said very careless things about them. Things like mm. Lois Jodder was um, lazy or Alzada Clover was naive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, instantly reading that, I'm like, I bet there's a lot more behind that. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's sources that trace to that, but you can't always trust the, the primary mm-hmm. sources when those sources are written by men, right? Yeah, right. The, their perception of what these women are and what they're doing has been filtered in all kinds of strange ways. And so peeling back those layers, taking taking off those filters was something that I felt sort of driven to do. Um, there was a point where kind of late in the project, actually, where I encountered a letter that Alzada Clover wrote. It was decade a decade after the trip, um, and she was writing about an, an article that had come out that had described her as a spinster who had a life empty of meaning. And she had gone on this trip because (laughs) not having a husband or kids, she had nothing to fill this hole in her heart, right? This is is what this article wrote. And she read this article and she wrote a letter to Lois, just infuriated, just livid, you know, and saying, she said, I hoped I would be out of print for the rest of my life. (laughs) And I I read that quite, it was quite near the end of this process when the book was pretty close to being done and and come out. And I just, I just hope like Elzada, you know, I hope that I did justice to her story. I hope I finally told it in the way that she would have wanted it told. Mm -hmm. Oh, I I, I bet you did. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. One of the things that really impressed me, Melissa, about this book is you made these women really come alive. I mean, I finished the book feeling as though I knew them. And I imagine you must have felt the same way by the time you were done done writing. And I, I wonder about just the way that they become three-dimensional to you through this process. And do you remember any any parts of the process? You Did you have an aha moment where you felt like, oh, now I understand, or, oh, here's a real insight into what they were thinking? Yeah, I um, that happened all the time, I guess, actually. Um, <laughs> oh, good. There were a couple of them at various stages. The, with Lois Jodder, the thing that really inspired me to start writing, um, right at the beginning, before I had decided I was going to write anything, I started dipping into some of the letters she wrote. And I found this letter that she wrote to her mother during the 1938 trip in which she described this disastrous day on the river. Everything had gone wrong. And 
through a series of unfortunate events, she ended up stranded on the riverbank all night by herself. And I remember thinking, like, if that had happened to me, I would have been terrified, you know. And you remembering it's 1938. They don't really know what they're doing. There's no emergency radio. Yeah. There's no evacuation plan. Like, she's stuck, you know. She's all alone all night. Most of us don't go camping by ourselves, right, for basic safety reasons. Yeah. And so I was really drawn to her description of this because she she described in just wonderful detail everything she did this evening. And then she said, I had a lovely time. Hmm. And that that really, like, this was right when I was first getting to know her. And I was like, that really drew me to her. Like, what mm-hmm. kind of person, you know, would have that kind of spirit in that moment, you know, to just build her fire and eat her toast and go to sleep and just have a lovely evening. Um, so that was something early on that really that really drew me into wanting to write more about her. Elzada was a little harder to get to know. Um, like I said, she was more of a private person. She was um, mm-hmm. less uh, open in her diary about what she would say, particularly what she would complain about. Mm-hmm. And the aha moment for me with Elzada was tracking down a former student of hers named Jane Myers, who, who still lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She read Elzada's obituary, Mm-hmm. And I Googled her name and found her address and sent her a postcard in the mail <laughs> and said, if you are that Jane Myers, I'd really like to talk to you about Elzada Clover. And we had many conversations uh, in the course of my research where she talked about one of the things I was trying to undo. One of the the layers of um, the filters that I was suspicious about was that I had encountered something that described Elzada as a motherly figure. And I wondered to myself, like, Are men writing about her that way just because she's a woman and she's in her 40s? You know, like, was she really a motherly figure? And I had this conversation with Jane where Jane was like, oh, you know, we used to go out on these field expeditions. And Alzada was so obsessed with the plants that she would just leave the students behind. And we would all fall (laughs) into the poison ivy. And like, I got deathly sick one day and I was afraid to tell her because I didn't want to derail the plant collecting. Like, this is who Alzada was. Like, she was a botanist. She was obsessed with plants. And I I loved being able to learn about her through the eyes of of one of her former students and um, hopefully like change the the perception of who this woman was. Yeah. Yeah. I think you really did that. (laughs) What luck. Yeah. So luckily you found her, but there were a lot of people that I'm sure you weren't able to reach. These are people who aren't around to tell you their stories. And so what were some of the other challenges that you faced as you were trying to tell the stories of people who were no longer alive. There's always unanswered questions. You know, Mm -hmm. at some point I like literally run out of primary documents. You know, I've, I've searched through (laughs) every archive that has anything to do with these two women and I'm just out of material and I still have, there's still kind of plot holes. You know, at one point they lose a part of their plant collection. I'm still not sure how, I don't know who they Mm -hmm. entrusted it to or how the miscommunication happened. Um, I have, I still have so many questions about the details of the trip, details of the camp life, what it was like Mm to, you know, at a time in the 1930s when they would have been intensely private about things like changing and bathing and bodily functions. Like, how does that function on a river trip? I mean, if you've been on one, you know that there's not a lot of privacy. Um, They alluded to that sometimes, but I would have loved to be able to just sit down and talk with either of them about what that was like for them. And yeah, I mean, at some point there's just questions that you you'll never be able to answer. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? I feel okay. I <laughs> I mean, 
the upside is that I knew when to stop writing. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like I, <laughs> that does I, help. <laughs> I, at some point I, I had to be like, this is the story that I have. Like I yeah. am out of material. I have mined it for every little bit of information I can. And it's time to let the story go and put it out into the world. And this is a good thing for me because otherwise I would just keep working on it forever. Um, yeah. You'd so, still be working on it. <laughs> right. Exactly. So yeah. you know, boundaries, boundaries are good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Emerging Form. If you're a paid subscriber, you'll get a special bonus episode next week where Melissa will talk about what her child creative self taught her adult self, why you might be in luck if you have a partner who doesn't have the same creative passions as you do, and how she turned a 10,000 word magazine article into a book. Impressive. And if you're not a paid subscriber yet, it's not too late. Go to emergingform.substack.com to become a paid subscriber today, and you'll get this and all our other bonus episodes. You'll also get the warm feeling of knowing that you're helping to make this podcast sustainable. Thank you. So I have another question about the process, actually, and that is, I know that you had a full-time job while you were writing this book. Yeah. How how do you do that? I mean, I know from experience (laughs) that this is like not a good idea. Can you just tell us, I know you and I talked about this uh, when we were together. I'd love for you to share a little bit about your process for writing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) I wish I had better. (laughs) I wish I could tell you how I did it. I can tell you that now that the book is out, I'm taking naps every day. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm very tired. Yeah, I mean, but I think, you know, I think a lot of people have to do this, right? I mean, you have to have a job that's paying paying your bills. Um, I wrote on Saturdays. Uh, I started this pattern actually back in graduate school. There was a period of time in graduate school when I was working on my second book, Mythical River, where I just hit a wall and I stopped writing completely and I was intensely depressed. And I was just like, I will never write anything again. (laughs) I was in a very bad place. And, um... I I eventually, through the help of various people that I reached out to for help, figured out that if I could get up on Saturdays in the morning and just write something, anything mm-hmm. on Saturdays, but then not write the rest of the week, like let it go the rest of the week, just do mm-hmm. the other things that I had to do. I started doing that and I started enjoying that. Eventually, I started to actually look forward to my Saturdays again. Mm-hmm. And that just worked for me. And so I've done that ever since. I write on Saturdays. I give myself permission to not write the rest of the week on these personal projects. Of course, I'm a writer professionally for my job, (laughs) but on these personal projects that I'm talking about. Um, And that, you know, it's the pattern helps me like just having that time set aside Mm -hmm. in my calendar. That's kind of like my time for writing whatever I want to write. It can be something silly or fun or something serious, whatever. Um, You know, yeah, I just. And I, yeah, <laughs> I just, I, I just plow forward. I don't even know how to tell you how I do it. I mean, I have, I have some advantages. I'm relatively healthy. I don't have any children, you know, um, there's some other things in my life yeah. that make it easier for me to write with a full-time job, but it's never easy. And I'm very tired now. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but you also said something that, that really struck me about Sundays. You said that you took Sundays off and that you thought it was really important to sort of rest and rejuvenate on Sundays. Is that still true? <laughs> Yeah, that's still mostly yeah. true. Um, you yeah. know, I break these rules all the time. But yeah, I think it's equally important as setting aside the time when you're writing is to set aside the time when you're not writing. Yeah. Because I think one of the reasons I, I hit that wall in graduate school and I stopped writing was because it was always in the back of my head. You should be writing right now. You should be working right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I have tendencies towards being a workaholic and a perfectionist. 
And that drove me into the ground. I ended up in a very bad place trying to follow that internal advice in my head. And so now I try to be a lot more mindful about setting aside times in which I am not allowed to write, you know, mm. <laughs> like this is just time to rest or time to do normal life things like grocery shopping or whatever. And to let go of the guilt and the that driving thing, that shouting thing in the back of your head that says you should be writing right now to just let that go and yeah, and rest, rejuvenate. And your mind keeps working during those yeah. times and in healthy and wonderful ways, you know, like Often when Saturday rolls around again, I'm eager to sit down and write because all week my mind has been working on little problems or little questions that I have and I'm ready to go. Yeah, I found it's it's really helpful to have this little mind shift where instead of I have to do this thing, it's like I get to do this thing. I'm choosing to do this thing, right? That's it. That's the shift exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Christy, have we ever had a guest say this before? That they set aside time where they absolutely will not Right. I I think they haven't ever said it that way. I don't think anyone's ever said it so explicitly. And I think it's just such great. I mean, I, I, I love this so much, Melissa, because there's so much pressure. I feel like the most common writing advice, right, is like, get up every morning and write. And like, it doesn't matter. You just have to write every day. And I'm like, I think that's terrible advice. Mm -hmm. I personally don't do that. It's such bad advice. Yeah. (laughs) I hate that advice. And I got that advice in grad school. And that's what drove me to the ground. You know what I mean? And it's very, it's very elitist advice. Like it assumes that everybody's life is the same and everybody's mind Mm -hmm. works the same way and your work habits are the same. I mean, gosh, if you've got little kids at home or if you've got caretaking responsibilities of any kind or if you've got to work three jobs or whatever, like we all have things, you know, Mm -hmm. that prevent us from writing every day. And this idea that like real writers write every day. Oh, my gosh, that's such nonsense. Like. (laughs) Make the schedule that works for you, you know, like do what works for you. And the morning thing, like I, I do write in the mornings on Saturdays, but morning is when I wake up. I do. I'm not one of those people that gets up at 4am and writes three hours before going to work. Like I'm not a morning person. I will never be a morning person. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think people need to be free to figure out what patterns work for them and feel no guilt if it doesn't match the pattern of whatever famous person is giving off this (laughs) terrible advice. (laughs) I think that's some of the best advice we've ever uh, presented here on Emerging Form. What do you think, Rosemary? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so. I mean, it's A, it's refreshing. I am not good at this. I just want you to know that I'm one of those people (laughs) who are like, I will write, I will write, I will write, every day I will write, I will write. Uh, which is, I think, part of why I was so thrilled to hear you say it just so oppositely uh, from what I do. <laughs> and, it, you know, it made me wonder if if I couldn't have, you know, days where at least I told myself until until I write a poem tonight, I'm not going to write. You know, I think that that might be an interesting, you know, just a challenge for myself to see if I could let myself not write. <laughs> I'm going to ask just one more question uh, in this episode, and I think it's this one. What did you learn about book writing that you think you'll apply to future projects from this book? Well, that's a great question. I feel like every time I tackle one of these projects, I think it's going to be easier than it really is. (laughs) So maybe just going into it knowing that this is going to be harder than I think it is. And it's going to be different than the last one was. You know, this Mm -hmm. is my third book but they were all different and all different, uh, different in strange, unpredictable ways. Um, This writing experience with Brave the Wild River was more intense than any, any that I've had before. Um, Mm -hmm. And also, I guess, 
one of the one of the pieces of advice I got right at, when I started this project, I went to talk with Kevin Federko, who's the author of The Emerald Mile, which is a wonderful mm-hmm. book about Colorado River running. And he gave me the piece of advice that I should be open to letting the book teach me something. Mm-hmm. Like the book would have something to say and I should be open to listening. And I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. You know, I, I thought I understood what he meant, but I did not understand what he meant. And it was in the process of writing this book that I understood that like these stories really, they teach the writer as much as they teach the audience or more so. Mm-hmm. Like you go into it thinking you know what the story's about and thinking you know what you want to say, but the story's going to take you a different direction. Um, yeah. And it, this story did that with me very powerfully. And so I... I hope I'll be able to remember that lesson next time I start (laughs) any sort of long project like this, just like letting it take me where it needs to go and not resisting quite as much as I did with this one. That is so on theme, Melissa, because, you know, the title of our podcast, Emerging Form, is all about, you know, allowing the artistic work, you know, to to show its form, for that form to emerge and to be open to that. And that's Mm -hmm. so essential to the, the creative process. Really is. So thanks for sharing that. Of course. Yeah. And listeners, we are going to continue this conversation with Melissa in our bonus episode, which will come out next Thursday. If you're a paid subscriber, you'll get that in your feed. But uh, for now, thanks so much for being with us, Melissa. Such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you, Melissa. You've been listening to Emerging Form. This is Rosemary Watola Tromer, and my co-host is science writer Christy Ashwanden. Our fabulous audio producer is Leah Shaw. Our music is created and performed by Kira Kopostansky and edited by Leah Shaw. Kate LaRue designed our logo. Jack Mueller, of course, inspired our work and the name of this podcast. As he always said, you must obey the poem's emerging form. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Emerging Form. Did you know that for just a few bucks a month, you can become a paid subscriber and get bonus episodes every other week? Go to emergingform.substack.com to sign up. And if you really want to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.